0: Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
1: Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ron Lieber. He is the Your Money columnist for the New York Times and the author of a book called The Opposite of Spoiled. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thank you for having me. Uh, People may not be familiar with you, so just give people a little bit of your background leading up to the publishing of this book and and joining the New York Times.
0: Sure. Uh, I got my start in journalism at Fortune Magazine in the 1990s, Uh, went from there to Fast Company, and uh, from there to the Wall Street Journal to work on the startup team on the late lamented personal journal section of the Wall Street Journal. I was there from 2002 to 2007. And along the way, I wrote a couple other books, uh, one called Taking Time Off that encouraged students to take gap years before college, Uh, another one called Upstart Startups that was for young entrepreneurs.
1: So let's get right into your book uh, called The Opposite of Spoiled. So first of all, what was the need for doing this book as to how uh, parents are relating to their kids around money?
0: Well, it started with uh, an acute uh, micro need in my own household, which was that I had a three-year-old who had a lot of super pressing questions about money that I did not know how to answer, which was sort of embarrassing internally inside of my household with my spouse in particular, you know, given that I play Dr. Money in the newspaper on the weekends for the New York Times, I ought to be able to handle this three-year-old, but I really did not know how to answer her questions in a way that made sense and that would also help make sure that she understood what our values were around money. So there was a personal element to it. But, you know, in my reporting for the newspaper uh, and for NYTimes.com, I had seen and discovered, you know, for years before that, that um, teenagers were making all sorts of questionable decisions about how to pay for college and what to borrow for college. And, you know, it was clear to me that a a whole bunch of conversations that should have happened much earlier in their lives about spending money and thinking about money and value and values that, you know, a lot of those conversations just were not happening for whatever reason. And so, you know, I saw an opportunity to help parents and help families make the connections, draw the lines between topics and get their kids ready to go out into the world on their own. And so what have been the implications
1: of these wrong decisions? Is this why people are in so much uh, kind of crushing student loan debt? Had that could that have been prevented had people had the right conversations earlier on?
0: I think that's a part of it, right? Um but- and, and, I, and I don't mean to sort of cast blame here, right? I, I don't think there's any particular reason that a, a 17-year-old should know uh, what they're doing when all of a sudden we um, force them to confront what may be the biggest and certainly the most impactful financial decision of their lives, right? It's shameful that we, as Americans, have built the system that sort of thrust teenagers into this, you know, incredibly large decision. Um, but, you know, the implications of getting it wrong are, you know, parents who don 't really understand the implications of borrowing themselves or their kids borrowing too much is that you know many people were coming out of college with enough debt that it was constraining the kinds of decisions they can make about where to live or what to do for a living um, you know might delay the beginnings of a you know retirement savings plan could well delay um, you know how long it took for them to buy their first home or have kids and You know, that was concerning, right? We should not be putting um, people behind the eight ball that way. But, you know, I also thought that there was a a larger point to make, right? That everything that we save, that we spend, what we spend our money on, who we give it away to, you know, it's just a lot about our, our values. And so... Part of the kind of ongoing training for kids ages 3 to 18, in addition to the, you know, sort of basics of, uh, of allowance and, and spending and interest, you know, ought to be kind of larger family conversations about, you know, what things we value most and what's worth spending money on and saving money for and, and what is not.
1: You have a whole chapter called How to Start uh, the Money Conversations. So how should parents start? And uh, is it different conversations at different ages, but how should parents kind of broach the subject and and do it in the right way instead of the way they usually do it.
0: Well, you know, the thing about trying to be deliberate about this, Jordan, is that you don't always get a choice in the matter, because kids are intensely curious by nature. It's their job to figure out how the world works. Money is certainly a very big part of what makes the world work, um, but the grown-ups are often kind of reticent about talking about it. They're reluctant, they're afraid of the topic, they're ashamed of their own lack of knowledge, and yet The kids are going to ask a ton of questions and often much earlier than you think. So you don't actually get to dictate exactly how and when the conversation begins. Your job is to answer the questions as openly and honestly as you can uh, and and to try and steer um, those questions that they're asking in a direction that allows you to sort of frame the answer around the things that your family cares about most. Then you have a whole chapter called The Allowance
1: Debates. So what is the right way to use allowances to teach kids the value of money but not give them too much too soon? You have a whole chapter on that. How, how should parents handle allowances?
0: Sure. Well, let's talk about the amount first because people ask me about that all the time. And you know, I have an answer that's more philosophical than it is quantitative. But, you know, the right answer to how much allowance is just enough so that they can have some of the things that they want but not so much that they do not have to make really hard choices, trade-offs right? Because that's what we grown ups do every day, um, often subconsciously without even thinking about it. Um, and so, you know, we want them to, to have that ability to practice those trade-offs, uh, you know, as soon as they possibly can. So that's the, that's the how much, um, you know, the other question that comes up a lot in the debate is in exchange for what? In other words, are they being paid for doing chores or not? And I am not a big fan of fame, paying for chores, if only because it puts you in a really bad negotiating position, right? Because if you're paying for chores and you've got a couple of savers on your hands, you know, after three or six months, they're going to have a big jar full of money, at which point they may say to you, we're not going to do the chores anymore. We've got enough money for a good long while right, and if part of the point of the exercise is to get them to contribute to the um, functioning of your household on a regular basis, then you don't want them taking um, you know the season off of chores. So I actually think that the best thing to do is to to keep those things apart. Right, uh, um, chores are something that you do for free, an allowance is for practice. Uh, money is a tool for learning, the same way that books are, or musical instruments, or sports equipment. Uh, money falls into that category as something that we want our kids to get good at, which is why we give it to them. So how about
1: uh, paying allowance for grades, right? Don't a lot of parents pay them more if they get good grades? Is that a bad idea?
0: Many parents do that, and all of the best research that's been done on this is essentially unanimous, which is that it's not a very good idea. Uh, It reduces what the psychologists refer to as intrinsic motivation, So that if money becomes the goal or the be all end all, they're not learning for the sake of learning or whatever joy they can derive, you know, from the task at hand or the subject that will cause their brains to expand, right? We don't want to do that. We want um, learning to be something that uh, feels good and is done for its own sake. Now, you know, it's possible to go too far with that. There are, are some tasks involved with. Becoming educated that are utterly and completely joyless and if you want to offer incentives um, for that, the, you know, the academic psychologists are willing to turn the other way and not look. Uh, My favorite story about this is uh, a friend of mine, a neighbor um, whose middle school girl uh, was engaged in a Pie contest, not pie as in P I E, eating pie or baking pie, pie as in P I. Um, and the teachers had challenged them to memorize as many digits of pie as they possibly could. And when she came home with this story, uh, Daddy O told her that he would give her a dollar for every digit that she memorized. And a week later, she came home from school. Having won the prize, and dad owed her $127 uh, <laughs> because she had, in fact, memorized 127 digits of pi. So, if you're going to play this game, uh, make sure you think through what the consequences will be for your own wallet. <laughs> <laughs> then you
1: have a whole chapter on the smartest way for kids to spend. So, today, you know, sneakers and iPhones, and they see things on social media, it's kind of the Instant Gratification Society. How do you get kids to learn to spend in a smart way?
0: Well, I think a big part of, of doing this is allowing them to make um, you know, really bad mistakes. Um, I, I guess every, every family begins w- with a certain set of values, right? And there are some things that you simply will not allow your kids to spend money on, right? Um, uh, you, know, you can call it a banned item list that you have in your house, the things that they are not allowed to buy and things that they are not allowed to do. So, you know, sort of the conversation begins there. But, um, you know, short of things that are on the list, I'd say, you know, allow them to spend uh, their money on whatever they want them to spend their money on in the hopes they will experience some deep regret sooner rather than later, so they can begin to learn about the things that kind of bring them the most joy. Um, You know, we know a fair bit about uh, grownups and what sort of happiness comes from their spending. You know, most of the best research on this says that we're happier if we spend money on experiences. Um, and, and not as much on stuff, right? That doing things brings more happiness than having things, especially if we do those things with people that we love, uh, whether they're related to us or, or just good friends, right? And, and often the same thing is true for kids. So, you know, we want them to learn that themselves um, the hard way, if necessary. Now, you know, we can place constraints on that, and, you know, we can give them ever more money and ever more responsibility as they get older. You know, maybe we turn the clothing budget over to them at, at uh, you know, at age 11 or 12, and they, they start buying all their own clothes. So, you know, we want to give them more responsibility as time goes on, but in general, we want to sort of cut them loose and see what they do in the hopes that they screw up royally and can learn some valuable lessons from that while they are still under our roofs and therefore not doing very much long-term economic damage to themselves.
1: So the idea is to have a fixed dollar amount that they're going to get every month, and if they've run through it by the middle of the month and they're going to complain, I need more to buy more stuff, you have to have a firm line and not give them more. Is that the way you teach the lesson?
0: Exactly, right? I mean, firm lime in the sand. And, you know, if you're going to advance them money for the following month, uh, charge them interest, right? Um, let them feel <laughs> that pain. Let them learn that lesson because, you know, that's probably what would happen to them out in the real world if they wanted it in advance. Then you have a chapter on are we raising
1: materialistic kids? So this is a big concern, I guess, is the kids, particularly of high income couples, are going to get spoiled and they get everything they want. They get BMWs when they turn 16. So what do you do to avoid having materialistic kids?
0: Well, I think you have to be watching very carefully kind of, you know, what it is that they're consuming, right? Because a lot of these ideas about what's normal and what's needed versus wanted, um, you know, these these come from the things that they're exposed to, right? In the same way that we would not um, hesitate, I think, to throw ourselves in between our kids and some, you know, really obnoxious, ostentatious, you know, billboard or a television commercial, you know, we've got to keep a pretty careful eye on what they're consuming on social media. I'm not a big believer in banning kids from things, but I think we want them, we want to know what they're looking at, and we want to remind them that um, most of what they're seeing is, um you know, brands are often their own friends using the medium as a sort of sales tool, right? It's like, look, here is the super enhanced, awesome version of me and my person and my friends and my life. And I, I actually want you to look at this and, and like it, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, that can be confusing for kids and I, I think we want to, uh, we want to explain it for them. And, you know, by the same token, again, right, if the allowance Is somewhat limited, and if they are, uh, you know, happen to be entrepreneurial and are earning a lot of money themselves as, as teenagers, you have every right to capture some of that money or dictate the terms of, you know, how it gets spent or saved, as the case may be, or given away, depending on your family's values and whether you tithe or how much charity work you do, right? So you ultimately control how much they have, and you ultimately control what they get. Um, there's only so much control you have over their kind of innate materialism, but you, know, you want to dictate some terms. Um, and when you dictate terms, um, you know, especially if, you know, if you're, you're lucky enough to be able to give them most of everything that they want, um, that doesn't mean it's good for them to do so, right? So if you need to impose artificial constraints, Impose artificial constraints and, you know, explain why you think certain brands belong on the banned item list and certain items are just, you know, too much for a 14 or a 16 or an 18-year-old. By all means, explain yourself, but definitely by all means, set limits.
1: What role is social media playing in materialism? I mean, if people see online that their friends have the latest iPhone and the latest uh, sneakers and cars and so on, and they're jealous, is, is that something that makes it more difficult to impose limits?
0: I think it does make it more difficult, right? I mean, if you think about, like, where where is the Instagram channel for modesty, right? For prudence, for thrift, right? It just doesn't make for very good um, copy. It doesn't make for very good uh, images. Um, you know, I mean, there's some exceptions, right? But, um, you know, what they're seeing is, you know, something that they are, in theory, supposed to aspire to. And often it involves, you know, spending money or spending time on you know, something um, material uh, that um, that the social media channel is designed to make them want more. Right. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it's just another um, version of advertising, except um, often it's the people who are closest to them, like their best friends who again are, you know, sort of using the medium as a sales tool to say, um, you know, I'm great. Here's the greatest possible version of me. Wouldn't you like to be great too? Well, in order to be great um, and have a life this great, you might need to, you know, go on this vacation with your family, or um, have this car uh, that I got when I was sixteen, or wear this brand of clothing, or have this makeup. Um, and you know, quite often it it's it's purposely designed to cause uh, kids and others too, but kids especially, to want things that they don't have. And so, um, you know, there's risk there, as as there is, um, you know, with any form of media. You talk about how to talk about giving, so uh,
1: if, if people get into a habit of giving back sooner, it's going to be easier for them later. Is that the idea, to kind of create a habit of giving when they're still young and in the house?
0: Yes, and I think that, you know, the big idea here is we want to get kids in touch at the earliest possible age with their inner givers, to find the causes that are meaningful to them, the things that move them so that, yes, we can get them in the habit of of giving regularly. So, you know, as part of an allowance, you might want to have them set aside a certain amount uh, each and every week or month um, that they get to, you know, sort of figure out and and allocate on their own. And similarly, you know, once they're nine or 10, you might sit down with them once a year and talk about um, the household giving budget and how you divide it up. Um, The way that we figured out how to do it several years ago is that, you know, we would sit down at the dining room table and say, okay, you know, for every $100 that we're giving away from the money that mom and dad earn, um, this is how we divide it up, and we would take 100 black beans and just divide them up on the table into piles so that it became clear that, you know, 15% of our giving budget was going to the two schools that gave me scholarships, you know, when I was growing up. So we're trying to pay back that money because that's important to us. And, um, and the money that goes to refugee organizations because, uh, you know, our daughter's great-grandparents were refugees, uh, you know, in the 1940s, right? So that that's important to us. And then having discussion about, okay, well, you know, what do we think is missing this year? Is there something that's important to us um, that's different from the the following year uh, or from the previous year? And then there was one last thing that was kind of a newer innovation in our household that, you know, I realized that the thing that we were not doing squarely enough was that we were not having a conversation uh, with our older daughter in particular, um, the right kind of conversation about our own family's history of having been helped itself, because every family has one, right? No, nobody gets to where they are all by themselves. And we actually have some pretty good ones to share, right? And you know, my mom is a 37-year breast cancer survivor. You know, she only she only survived that because other people had been generous, uh, you know, at Northwestern University Hospital in Chicago. Uh, and so, you know, we, we tell that story. And our daughter is involved with a fundraising organization that my mom helped start you know, we talk about those refugee grandparents and how, you know, Hitler nearly did did all of them in. Um, And when they finally got to New York city, there was just a line of refugee organizations waiting to help them out and get them settled. Um, We talk about the fact that, you know, I was the recipient of scholarships for, you know, a dozen years that resulted from other people being generous. So kids like me would not be evicted for those schools when, you know, their parents fell on difficult times. And so, you know, she knows all those stories, and we talk about them repeatedly to make sure that she knows um, how it was that we have benefited directly from other people's giving uh, so that she can, you know, get in touch with those, um, you know, particular uh, organizations and, and, and the reasons why they inspire us. So it's sort of that combination of stuff um, that you do over time, over years, uh, you know, on a semi-regular basis that can help sort of set the tone and create the habit. Then you have a whole chapter on why kids should work. Is this something kids
1: resist, or how do you get them to work, and at what age do you want to start having them doing some work, and by the time they get to college, uh, they have worked a good amount?
0: Well, I think the thing that's changed a fair bit from, you know, when you and I were kids, Jordan, is that that... is uh, that the schedules have just gotten so busy, right? Uh, you know, school runs longer. There's more school days than there used to be. And, you know, the the, the number of extracurricular activities that are available and the sort of just kind of programming or over-programming um, has made it, you know, difficult to just kind of have a, a regular after-school job. And and if the summers are shorter, it, you know, it makes it harder for somebody to hire you and give you substantive work to do. And yet, right, So so... The result is, you know, at least in families where the kids do not need to work to help keep the the lights on, which is, you know, the case for many families, um, for for families where work is a choice, um, more often than not, uh, they choose for the kids not to work. Um, And, you know, I think that's a mistake. I I think the kids should... Um, learn what it means to work hard for somebody else who's not a blood relation or they can get fired if they don't perform. Um, they should learn what it means to be evaluated. They should learn what it means to have you know customers or important things that they're in charge of. Um, they should learn what it means to put that money away and and have to use it for some you know, larger purpose later on. You know, I'm a big believer in making kids pay for at least some chunk of college. Uh, You know, even if you're in the 1%, you can write a check out of current income for for $300,000 for four years at a competitive private college. That doesn't mean you should. I I think these kids should have skin in the game. They should know what it means to earn that money and uh, strive for a goal.
1: Your final chapter is called How Much is Enough?, So how do you teach kids about the trade-offs they have to make that they're going to ultimately have to make when they become adults?
0: Well, you know, how much is enough is like one of the most cosmic questions of all of of human existence, and you can ask it in about any area of life. And so I think in general we cannot ask it enough. Um, But in the realm of money and personal finance, I think we ought to be asking it all the time. And, you know, with kids in particular, right, it's sort of a um, you can have a series of micro discussions about it uh, almost um, uh, you know, all the time. Right. When you think about, uh, I mean, you mentioned sneakers earlier, right? Well, well, how much sneaker is enough, right? And, and so as a family, you've got to sort of draw a kind of like want-need continuum for every area of spending, right? So, you know, your, your daughter's a soccer player, and you've got to figure out, okay, how much soccer cleat is enough, right? Is is the $80 cleat enough? Um, is the $100 cleat or the $150 cleat, uh, you know, that much more superior that that she actually needs it, Um you know, we make all these mental calculations all the time, but we keep it to ourselves. We don't share them with our kids. And we should be having those conversations, right? And, you know, in our household, often if our daughter wants something that's kind of way over on the right side of the want continuum in a particular category, we'll make her pay the difference between what we're willing to pay for that category and the thing that is that she wants. And if she's got to, you know, reach into her jars for an extra 30 or 40 bucks, well, then she's really going to be thinking about that trade-off and whether it's worth it. And again, right, we're in the adult-making business here. Uh, we're trying to make them smarter uh, so that when they get out in the world on their own, they've already kind of you know, calibrated this way of, of making choices, and they have a keen understanding of what it is that will make them happy. So you know, we might as well start making them ha- make those decisions and do those calculations when they are still living with us. So there is a website around the book, which is called
1: oppositeofspoiled.com. What has been the reaction to the book since it's been out? Run.
0: I've been thrilled with the re- with the reaction. I think the thing that I've been um, most surprised by is that um, all, all sorts of people want to. Um, hasn't come and speak to their community um, so that they can ask questions and you know every community has kind of a different set of issues um, and so there's been uh, you know a, a lot of demand for kind of like the live version uh, of the book where you know I sort of show pictures and tell stories and that's been incredibly gratifying because you know the one-on-ones like people will ask questions in front of all of their peers in their community and um, those are those are great too but I, I, I especially enjoy um, you know the people who wait till the end and then you know have a super particular private question that they're sort of embarrassed to ask in front of, of other people and and it's literally everything from what do we do about our kid that refuses to fly on our private jet due to what do we do about the fact that um, you know the main breadwinner in our house was just fired and we're like embarrassed to tell our kids about it because we think that it will cause them too much anxiety and it like spans sort of everything in between so You know, I I, I love those those one-on-one interactions.
1: Very good. We're going to take a break and come back on the other side. Um, This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Ron Lieber. He is the Your Money columnist for The New York Times and author of the book we were just talking about called The Opposite of Spoiled. Uh, The website for that is oppositeofspoiled.com. We'll be back after this.
2: The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
1: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Ron Lieber. He's the Your Money columnist for The New York Times and the author of the book we just spoke about, Opposite of Spoiled. Welcome back to the show, Ron. Thank you. So we're going to get into a lot of the different topics you've written out, but before that, How do you pick topics of what you want to write about in your weekly column in the the New York Times?
0: Oh, you know, sometimes it's driven by the news and, and, you know, what's happening, right? So this has been one of the busier news quarters of my entire career, I would say, you know, between um, the Equifax breach and what's going on with the tax bill and the beginnings of the reauthorization of the Higher Education Act, um, you know, all sorts of stuff that's just sort of core um, to what people care about and to their wallets um, has been kind of front and center. So it's, it's been a busy time for news, and a lot of my kind of pet projects or stunts that I want to pull, um, those have all kind of uh, been pushed to the back burner right now. Indeed. So
1: you did a column called, I want to search earnings for English majors by college. You can't. So what do you think should be done in be able to research colleges that is not now available?
0: Well, let's sort of set the table on that, right? Um, Without anybody really paying much attention or taking much notice of it, um, you know, several years ago, we passed a a really kind of crazy inflection point where the, you know, average costs of sending a kid to a flagship state university, including room and board without discounts or financial aid, passed the $100,000 mark for four years. And at the most selective schools in America, if your kids are starting there now and you're not getting financial aid, that's going to cost you $300,000. That is per kid after taxes, right? So if you've got yeah. you know two kids, like, like the average person who does have kids in America, um, what that money is going to add up to, um, it could well be more than you paid for your house. I mean, this could be the biggest financial decision you ever make in your life, and it's certainly the most impactful, and it is absolutely emotional, right? Because you've got this, you know, teenager flowing with hormones and and anxiety, and everybody's on edge, right? And so when you go trying to figure out what I'm going to get for that $100,000 or what I'm going to get for that $300,000, and you want to sort of, you know, compare across uh, schools, you know, you're going to be interested in a lot of things. You're going to be interested in How happy is my kid going to be? What's the campus life like? Uh, You know, is the school going to make them smarter? Um, But one thing you're definitely going to want to know is what's going to happen to the kid afterwards, right? Um, And quite often when you're investing money in tuition, you want to figure out how much money you're going to get out of it at the other end. You know, what is my kid going to earn? And how is that going to change depending on what it is they study? feels like a perfectly reasonable thing to ask for in a world that is, awash with data where Consumer Reports for decades has been able to give you, you know, anything and everything you want about cars and appliances. Well, if you go looking for that data on colleges and outcomes, you will not find it. And it is, in fact, illegal to gather it. Uh, The colleges managed to get something inserted into the law 10 years ago that says no gathering salary data that can be compared by major or program. It is literally not legal to gather and give out data on the most important financial decision that you will ever make. Uh, I found it outrageous. Um, I thought that and under was-
1: Obama, I thought they were going to have some kind of a evaluation where people could see What kind of earnings came from different uh, majors and different colleges? That that was all squashed, is what you're saying? They were
0: trying, and there was so uh, much pushback from the higher education industry uh, that the effort more or less fell apart. I mean, they were able to do some of what they intended to do, but not go as far as they wanted. And, uh, you know, a a lot of this conversation is, um, you know, often about, um, for-profit colleges in particular, where there have been real problems with people borrowing a lot of money and, you know, getting a degree that's worthless. And so, you know, if we're talking about, like, okay, well, you know, the the English major at the University of Iowa versus the English major at Northwestern, right? Um, you know, the, the differences between those two probably are not going to be great. But, you know, there are some departments and programs at some schools that, uh, you know, where people graduate and just do not make a lot of money. And no. the schools don't want to be compared on that basis. And, you know, some of them are sort of, Haughty about it, and and think that oh, you know, that the income is uh, the absolute worst way to, to measure the you know the outcome of an academic experience. And you know, I, I get that there are um, other things that you could argue that are more important in the development of an adolescent. But by all means, if you've got better data, give it to us. There is almost no data at all about this, the biggest number you will ever spend in your life, right? And so yeah. what's going on now is that there is a bipartisan effort. Um, everyone from Orrin Hatch on the right to Elizabeth Warren on the left agree that there should be uh, universal salary data based on um, program or major uh for people who are just getting out of college and for people ten years out of college. Um but there is a part of the higher education industry that does not want to see this happen. They are lobbying against it. Uh they have Virginia Fox who who runs the House Committee on Education um, on their side. And so it's you know not at all clear um that this data will ever be turned loose on the world. Um and you know my reason for writing the column was that I just thought people should know um that this yes. was the state of affairs for, you know, these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that they may be spending on their kids, that they not only cannot get data, but they cannot get it by law.
1: Yeah. Let's move to another topic, which is taxes. So right now, the House and Senate are uh, reconciling the bills that passed on both sides. Uh, What do you think is going to come out? I mean, I know it's a complicated bill, but are there going to be big winners and losers? Or what do you think is going to end up happening out of this? And how will it affect people's personal financial behavior? (laughs)
0: So, Jordan, uh, I have long since gotten out of the prediction game, Um, particularly, uh, you know, in the last 12 to 18 months. uh, I think anybody who tries to forecast what's going to happen, um, you know, is is sort of foolish. So I I will not attempt to handicap, um, you know, what the odds are of this all falling apart um, in the next couple of weeks. Um, but, uh, you know, the basic outlines of what m- might happen, um, are pretty clear. Um, and I, I think that the things that would not go away, you know, during any compromise are the attempts, um, to, um, uh, to, to you know, I mean, the, the, let me say this, right. Um, you know, if you think about the, um, the deductions, Uh, around state and local income taxes and around mortgage interest. Um, those are things that are of, you know, particular importance to people who have, um, above average income, um, who have enough of those line items that they are more than the standard deduction currently and are more than the standard deduction, uh, what it would be under both the House and Senate bills. Um, it just so happens that, you know, most of the people who, um, deal with those things um, are in states that vote mostly Democrat. Right, there are very high state income taxes in California, in New York, uh, in New Jersey, in Illinois. Uh, these are and Massachusetts. These are states that uh, almost always go for uh, the Democratic uh, presidential candidate and have congressional delegations that are. Um, more likely to be Democrat than Republican. Um, so, you know, I'm going to abstain on the whole question of whether this is, uh, you know, targeted specifically. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, folks in those um, communities are going to end up, um, a lot of them are going to end up paying thousands and thousands of dollars more in income tax each year. And I think what people forget are sort of the follow-on effects of that, right? Because you've made a choice To move to a community that has a certain uh, amount of taxes um, to support a certain level of school funding, right? Um, But if all of a sudden everybody is taking a two, three, you know, sort of 5% pay cut, uh because the tax situation has changed, it's going to be very, very difficult to raise taxes in that community again. And in fact, you know, there may be pressure to bring the taxes down. So that changes how quickly people move in, it changes how quickly people move out. It changes home prices. Um, you know, all sorts of stuff happens as, as a result of this very, very, very quick um, you know, effort to to pass this tax plan. And I I wonder and question whether we have thought through all of those implications. Yeah. So, do you think
1: people will move a lot? I mean, from high tax states to low tax states, because if they talk about that, but it may be difficult for them to sell their homes. Uh, to people well, that want to take it off if they're not I'm getting deductions.
0: Sort of yeah, I'm of sort of two minds about that. I mean, uh, how many decades now have you and I been been reading the you know the Wall Street Journal editorial page, slamming their fist on the table at at every you know minuscule change in federal or state taxes. Um, you know, predicting and predicting and predicting that there were going to be mass migrations from high tax states to low tax states. I don't know yeah. that we've ever seen it on any kind of mass basis, and I'm not sure I would believe anyone who would predict that it would happen here. But I do believe that there's some evidence um, of, you know, migration out of um, Chicago or Illinois. Now, you know, whether that's because of just overall governmental dysfunction, whether it's because of the tax situation in particular, whether it's it's fear of violence, rightly or wrongly, you know, you, you can't always prove causation um, with with these migration patterns when they are, in fact... Noticeable, so but you know on the margins will it make a difference? You know will people who are retiring you know get out of New York or Illinois or California sooner mm-hmm. and go someplace else? I, I think it's possible, but um, again you know it's it's very difficult to figure out. You know the thing that bothers me about what's going on is like where is the the TurboTax you know calculator where I can pay TurboTax a hundred bucks? And they keep, a, they, keep a, they keep a calculator, a scanner, where they just kind of scan my 1040, um, and they keep it up to date based on, like, every change in the tax bill, where I can just know, like, okay, how, how is this going to turn out for me, based on the version today versus the version they had two days ago versus the version they'll have in four days. And, you know, it's very difficult for people to know for sure how exactly this is going to end up for them. And so, you know, we're all kind of guessing here. Yeah. Let's
1: move to Equifax, which is you've written a lot of columns about this this week, this year. Um, So first of all, was it just gross incompetence or is it one rogue person or what caused this hack and what have been the impacts on consumers so far?
0: Well, as best as as we know now, you know, thanks to a a bunch of great reporting that's gone on, um, you know, throughout the business journalism world, um, you know, Equifax had plenty of warning that there was a problem, but it looks like it was only a handful of people who kind of didn't do what they were supposed to do. Um, But, you know, sort of take a bigger step back, right? Um, You know, uh, in the world of personal finance journalists, I mean, uh, we've, those of us who cover credit reporting have all been, you know, saying to one another for years, uh, you know, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? One of these big three bureaus is going to be breached. And so it was, it was not a huge um, surprise that it happened. I think the thing that was um, most surprising or just disappointing was how poorly Equifax handled what happened afterwards. Um, you know, it was just obvious that their systems, um, from the phone system to their websites, were just totally and utterly ill-equipped to handle the traffic, to handle the questions, Um, you know, everything from their technology to their public relations was just an Um, F-minus. And that's kind of what bothers me the most, that, you know, all these people who had been um, victimized here, whose information had been stolen from an entity that they'd never really you know, given permission to gather all their information in the first place, then essentially turned their backs on them and could not answer their very basic and reasonable questions. And that is what really got me exercised.
1: So what, what was so bad about it was that the basic information about you that cannot change, your name, your social security number, your birth date, your mother's maiden name, social, you know, all those kind of things is what got out. So people say, well maybe they maybe I'm not hit yet, but they could hit you five years later uh, once the hackers you know kind of take their time is so are people still vulnerable even though they've maybe they have credit monitoring now i mean wh- what should people
0: do with this information that's now circling around the dark sure. web uh, yeah, look, I mean, equifax or or not, um my personal opinion of the state of affairs is that you know, I I lost my privacy a long time ago and my social security number is in enough, you know, medical files and who knows where else, that all sorts of people could get after it if they had um, bad intent. And so, you know, what I did a long time ago, like the very first moment that I could 10 or 12 years ago when they made it legal, was to do what's called putting a freeze on my credit files. And that's different from a fraud alert, which is a different thing. A freeze means going to the, to Equifax and Experian and TransUnion and saying, I do not want you to release my information to anyone who is trying to start new credit in my name. That's what it means to freeze your files. And once you do that, um, you know, some of the worst form of identity theft, um, which is known as new account fraud, where they open new accounts in your name, becomes impossible because most places that aren't currently doing business with you will not open a new account unless they can check your credit. And if you have frozen your credit, then they can't check it, and thus no new account for the thief who is impersonating you. So, you know, it's a little bit of a pain to set up the freeze, and then you've got to remember to turn it off temporarily when you yourself want new credit. Um, You know, and it costs a couple of bucks depending on where you live, but, you know, I've been perfectly happy with my credit files frozen for the past decade, and I would encourage anyone and everyone to do the same thing. Have there, in
1: fact, been a lot of hits on people's credit uh, since the Equifax breach, using that particular
0: information? Well, here's the difficult thing about this: is that when somebody commits fraud and starts a new account in your name, they do not announce, "Hey, here's where I got the information." Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so we do not know for a fact that any of the Equifax information is, you know, for sale. Or has been used by thieves. and It is entirely possible um, that it was a, um, a state actor who did the stealing. You know, there's lots of speculation that, you know, China, that North Korea, that Russia... Um, you know, is behind um, you know some of the big breaches that have taken place or that they are the ultimate recipient of the information because you know imagine how useful it might be for spying purposes, right? If you've stolen a bunch of medical data and you've stolen a bunch of financial data and you and you know and you've got ten thousand you know people uh, you know in the u s government or or other people that you've got your eye on um, for spying purposes and And you can, you know, blackmail them, uh, then, then you can see how this information might, might be more valuable, uh, you know, from a governmental perspective than it would be if you just sold it on the open market for, you know, $20 a social security number. And the scary thing is that, you know, the, the North Koreans both, you know, want to commit espionage and are desperate for green cash money, right? So they might steal the information to sell it and they might steal it to use it for blackmail or they might use it for both. But we just do not know for a fact who was behind this. And it's possible that we may never find out. So let's talk about uh,
1: investing a little bit. You have some columns this year about investing short-term when stocks are high, and they've gone a lot higher <laughs> since then. And you also talk about when brokers want to move your money out of a very good thing. How should people be reacting with a market that's moved so much? And I'm, you may not have written about it, but specifically – the kind of frenzy that's going on now with Bitcoin. What, what do you make of all that? How should people react to it?
0: I, you know, I, I'm not convinced that anybody who is investing in Bitcoin really understands it, right? And if the point of the exercise is to create an alternative um, currency that isn't just for drug, for drug dealers, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. But the, that's not what this has become here. It's just become a speculative tool. And, you know, as with, with any mania um, you know it'll end badly um, but i don't i have no idea when it'll end there's entire it's entirely possible that people who you know buy here and and sell in 6 months um, will triple their money and you know more power to them if they do but it's gambling Right, and gambling is a ton of fun. Uh, I don't want to outlaw gambling for anybody, but you know, just make sure that if you're putting money um, into Bitcoin, it's money that you can afford to lose, um, that you can afford to have it stolen, that you don't mind if it goes to zero, um, and as long as you're completely comfortable with that, have at it. <laughs> so you think it'll always end
1: badly in these kind of things? I mean, some people are saying Bitcoin is the new gold; it's going to replace fiat currency. This is the new. This is somebody recently said this is bigger than the internet, and it's a complete revolution in the way we do payments, and we're just at the beginning of this uh, whole uh, trend.
0: Look, it's, it's like, you know, I, I never want to be absolute about these things, right? Because, you know, the, the thing that immediately jumped my mind was to say, well, okay, you know, w- 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 when else in history has something gone from you know, a dollar to $15,000 or, or, you know, $100 to $15,000 in such a short period of time, and it hasn't ended badly. And, you know, you could, in fact, you know, name some stocks that were available on the open market that have had, you know, gargantuan returns, although not as fast as as Bitcoin has, right? Um, So, you know, if you like look really hard, maybe you find some precedent for this. But again, I just, you know, it's such a long shot that this is, Permanent and 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 that the value will be real and, and lasting in this way, shape, or form, that I, I you know I just wouldn't be betting on it unless I could afford to lose all my money. Do you think regulators are going to come in? I mean, today trading
1: on the futures market started, and I think they overwhelmed the uh, servers of the CBOE within five minutes or something like that. There was so much demand. Right. Are, are regulators going to get into the whole Bitcoin game and how will that change it?
0: I would not dare to predict how regulators will behave in this particular political environment. Um, But, uh, you know, if a whole bunch of people get hurt um, or if a whole bunch of people have money stolen, um, then I think they'll have no choice. They'll just be sort of a drumbeat for it.
1: Yeah. You also had several columns about Medicaid and qualifying for Medicaid and adjusting your assets. Mm -hmm. and Is that ethical or not? A lot of people... We want to do this kind of advanced planning where you have to get rid of your assets five years before to qualify for Medicaid. Is that the right thing to do, or, or how should people think about qualifying for Medicaid?
0: Sure. Well, I guess I'd take a step back and, and say this. You know, I mean, this was, uh, uh I had not written as much about Medicaid over the years as <clears throat> I now wish that I had. And I felt somewhat radicalized. Um, by the discussions around the Affordable Care Act um, where they were going to, you know, cap Medicaid, which which would have a severe impact on people's ability to access the program going forward. And I think what a lot of us forget about, you know, we hear Medicaid and we thank uh, poor people. Um, but if you have an aging parent or aunt or uncle or grandparent who has run out of money or close to it, and been in a nursing home, there's a pretty good chance they've ended up on Medicaid. What people don't realize is that, um, you know, an incredibly large percentage of the people who are in nursing homes are having Medicaid pay for at least some of them because they have run out of money. It's, you know, more than 50 percent. Right. So in that way, med- med- Medicaid, Medicaid. Has actually become a middle class entitlement for people in nursing homes. People who had three hundred or four hundred thousand dollars to their name when they moved into the nursing home five years ago end up with no money and end up on Medicaid. And and we just don't we don't realize that if we haven't been exposed to it um, ourselves. But then there's a subset of people like the ones that you mentioned, who are in fact. Um, Eager to get onto Medicaid, uh, and they want to find some way to sort of preserve their assets ahead of time so that they don't um, end up spending hundreds of thousands of dollars at the nursing home. And so, you know, they do all sorts of perfectly legal backflips with the part, uh, with, a, with, a, with the help of attorneys um, to sort of move their assets around before um, they think that they might need them. Now, there's the disadvantages to this, right? Because maybe you won't end up in a nursing home. Um, and so, you know, you've given all your money away early and maybe it would have been useful to you or maybe you give it to, a, um, you know, an errant adult child who goes and does something ridiculous with, right? So there's there's risks there. Um, also, uh, you know, if you are on Medicaid or are close to qualifying for Medicaid, there are some nursing homes that may um, sort of look down their nose at you. Right? You know, the nursing homes in, in their defense um, have a hard time keeping the lights on if every single patient in the home is on Medicaid because Medicaid doesn't pay very much on a daily basis. So they want yeah. some full-paying patients or as many as possible. Um, so you may be restricting your choices somewhat if you're too close to qualifying for Medicaid at the moment at which you need long-term care. So, you know, there's disadvantages here, but um, you know, right now, the, the, the moves that people make with the help of elder care uh, attorneys are perfectly legal. Um, and, you know, I think we could probably spend a, an entire hour debating whether we think they're ethical. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, it's the law of the land and, you know, states, um, Medicaid officials, uh, you know, make all sorts of rules to try and keep people from gaming the system. And, um, you know, it, it, that sort of thing will continue to go on. Very good.
1: Well, thanks so much. We've had a good tour of all kinds of personal finance topics that you've covered this year. Uh, His book, uh, Ron Lieber's book is called The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. You can find out more about that at his website, which is oppositeofspoiled.com, and also at his direct website, which is ronlieber.com. Thanks so much for being a great guest on The Money Answer Show, Ron. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now.
0: Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.